My name is Patricia Burgess. I am the bankruptcy and restructuring partner with Brox Brown Todd and the special projects lead for the Emerging Industries and Technology Committee of ABI. Frost Brown Todd is a full service law firm that has been specializing in the crypto space for a long time. As such, I have asked several of my partners to talk about crypto in bankruptcy and address some of the issues that we all, as bankruptcy lawyers, need to understand and think about. We are breaking this topic down into four separate podcast episodes featuring a few of our crypto specialists. For our first episode, I am speaking with John Wagster about what crypto is and how it works. John leads the firm's technology industry team and digital assets subteam. He focuses on technology-related commercial agreements with a particular interest in blockchain technology, cryptocurrencies, and the automotive space. John also has unique experience helping companies forge cross-cultural cultural contractual agreements around the world using industry best practices and Western style contracts. John represents scores of clients across the blockchain ecosystem, including issuers of digital tokens through initial coin offerings, providers of distributed applications, cryptocurrency hedge funds, exchanges, consultants, and marketers. Finally, John has extensive experience handling complex cybersecurity incidents and serves as chair of the firm's China desk. So to start out today, I think it would be helpful for the basic bankruptcy practitioners who, who aren't experienced in crypto, but are facing issues in bankruptcies as we're seeing them get filed more often. To do some background, what are some of the basic concepts, John, that we need to understand to help us help our clients? Uh, thanks, Trish. I think before we even go into basic understanding, I, before we can answer your question, we have to lay some background about, you know, the ethos behind uh, blockchain and cryptocurrency. You know, the first cryptocurrency, which was Bitcoin, was created specifically to disintermediate the traditional banking system. So during the, during the economy, the economic crisis in 2008, started in 2008, you know, people around the world were really angry that mistakes had been made by bankers and by people create, uh, trading complex financial products. And that was affecting them, even though it didn't have anything to do with them. So this pseudonymous creator of Bitcoin, Satoshi Nakamoto, said, I, uh, I'm going to create something where we can share that we can share a financial we can share a ledger without fully trusting each other. And that's how Bitcoin was was born. And it was born specifically to try and stop uh, banks from controlling everything. He wanted to get rid of trusted middlemen like banks and brokers. <clears throat> but so and that's been going now for, you know, over to over. Long, 15 years plus uh, and the use cases are evolving. So, John, what are some of the problems you see in the crypto space? And a lot of the problems that we're seeing in, in crypto, specifically the bankruptcies, from the point of view of the crypto community, are not crypto problems. They're problems with traditional finance because companies like Three Euros Capital, a huge hedge fund, and FTX, which is a centralized exchange, uh, and Celsius, which is a centralized lending program. The problems with it caused the bankruptcies in those entities had nothing to do with the fact that they're in crypto because those entities are all traditional entities. They have a board of directors. 
They have people making decisions on their behalf, uh, and they're all profit motivated. That's not the ethos of cryptocurrency. Ethos of cryptocurrency is we all control our own financial well-being. Help us understand the distinctions between what is crypto as compared to when I have assets sitting in a particular bank or I need to borrow money from a particular bank. How how am I putting my money into crypto differently than in a traditional banking system? Uh, okay, great question. So at a high level, crypto, uh, cryptocurrencies, blockchain technology is a ledger. Uh, and it's a ledger that allows, allows individuals that don't trust themselves to communicate with each other without a trusted entity. So when you put your money in a bank, you're counting on that bank to, to manage it properly. And that bank is required by certain government regulations to do certain things. Uh, and the government insures your deposits up to a certain point. When you invest in a cryptocurrency or when you put money into a cryptocurrency, the only trust you have are by the other users of that cryptocurrency. And cryptocurrency is often referred to as decentralized because there is no trusting entity that oversees what you're doing. The people that oversee it are the users themselves. It's a very complex uh, method of ways. There are a number of different ways that users can generate consensus and agree on how they do things. But each cryptocurrency has its own type of consensus and its own way that, that the users interact with each other. But they do it in a decentralized way. And decentralization is really the key to it. That means that the users themselves control decisions, usually through voting, uh, and that their decisions are not controlled by any one individual. Um, so when, uh, so maybe, it would, maybe it would be helpful, John, if, if let's follow a transaction. So let's say I have $10. I put that in a bank. I know it's going to sit in an account and it's going to earn a certain rate of interest. And I know at any point in time, I can go and get my $10 back with whatever interest I have there. If I invest $10 into crypto, since it's this ethereal concept, where does it go? It goes to a ledger that's recorded. And then from there, is it decided by the group? What's going to happen with that money? How does it earn money? How, how is it invested? How does how do we get a return on it? Uh, so it, it's, it's difficult to answer that question because there are at least 20,000 different cryptocurrencies and they all have a slightly different answer. But generally speaking, I would say people that are in crypto aren't looking at it necessarily as an investment. They buy a token because that token does a particular thing or has a particular attribute that's attractive to the buyer. Um, so in the case of Bitcoin, which is the most common, most well-known cryptocurrency, people believe that Bitcoin is a better medium of exchange than traditional fiat-based government-backed currencies because it's not subject to interest rate fluctuations or quantitative easing or any of the other governmental factors that can influence monetary policy. It's only influenced by the people who hold it and by how much people want it. So it's a simple market-based supply and demand. If people, if a lot of people want Bitcoin right now, the price goes up. If people don't want it, the price goes down. So when you say invest, Certainly, there are speculators who buy Bitcoin because they think it's going to go up and go down. But the true creators and the crypto enthusiasts, they don't buy it for that. They buy it because they think it's a better form of, of money. 
I can send a Bitcoin to anybody anywhere in the world in a matter of seconds for pennies. Uh, but if you if I need to send money to somebody else through a bank, then I have to go through the SWIFT system or I have to send a wire. It's going to cost me 150 bucks and it's going to take it two to three days to clear. That's just faster and easier and better. So that's really the point for a lot of different cryptocurrencies. Each one has some utility or some fact about it that makes people want to own it. I'm not saying that people aren't buying to speculate. They are. But that's not why they were necessarily created. That's helpful. So in a bankruptcy context, you know, bankruptcy is a part of any business cycle. Um, but I guess the whole point of my background is that these are competing mindsets. So when these crypto companies go bankrupt, there are many considerations that bankruptcy practitioners and trustees really need to be familiar with. Um, and for example, if a trustee wants to take custody of an asset that's in cryptocurrency, they need to know how to use a cryptocurrency wallet, or they need to be know how to set up an account on a centralized exchange like Coinbase. Um, if they don't know that, they can't take custody of the asset. Period. So there's a there's just there's a learning curve. Uh, once they have an account, either their own decentralized wallet. And again, we're talking about centralized and decentralized and a centralized exchange like Coinbase. If you have your cryptocurrency on that exchange, it's actually held by the exchange and it's not, uh, you don't have immediate control of it. The exchange does. And it's possible to put, to send a court order or a demand to that exchange and have them segregate the assets that are held by any particular individual that goes bankrupt. But if those crypto assets are held on a decentralized wallet and a wallet is an electronic uh, piece of software that, that controls the entries on the ledger of any particular blockchain. So in the case of Bitcoin, it controls the entries on the Bitcoin ledger and it tracks it so that I, anybody who has their own wallet, they control those keys and they control what happens to that cryptocurrency. So if, if somebody goes bankrupt and a trustee or an individual tries to attach that asset, they can attach a centralized exchange with a legal demand. But if I have my coins on a, on a decentralized electronic wallet, how are they going to attach them? First off, how are they going to know that I have them? And B, if they know, how are they going to attach them? Because only I control that. And, and only I and the other people in the world that have the access to it. We can talk about how you access those wallets and that sort of thing, but that the basic answer is there are a lot of tools that a bankruptcy practitioner will need to get comfortable with learning how to buy, sell, and trade and take custody of cryptocurrency on behalf of their clients. So that leads to a question. So assuming it's a, I understand the centralized exchange, but assuming it's a decentralized exchange, Every individual that has cryptocurrency on that exchange, they hold it, they control it. Is there any reporting? Is there any regulation? Is there any notice requirements? Do other people know that you have it? So as you, could you raise the issue, how would a trustee even know that you have it? What tools would a trustee use to figure out if a particular debtor, despite 
you know, your typical scheduling requirements in a bankruptcy, how else would you know? So there are, all, there are a lot of questions there. Um, every transaction that has ever taken place on any blockchain is enshrined in that blockchain forever. So all transactions can be retraced and can be viewed on a ledger. So blockchains are ledgers and there are different types of software tools. One is called Etherscan. Any Ethereum-based transaction that's ever happened can be identified by the transaction hash on Etherscan. You go out and find it, you can see when it happened, and you but the transactions are pseudonymous. They can only be identified by the transaction number or the hash. They're not identified by the individual's name or email address or physical address or anything like that. So anybody can prove that a transaction happened, but they might not know who the transaction belongs to. So when I have a decentralized wallet, electronic wallet, the most popular one out there is called MetaMask. Uh, it's actually a browser extension. So it operates like a browser on your internet. When I enter, when I make a trade, a purchase or a transfer using MetaMask, I access Meta MetaMask through a what's called a private key. And every wallet has both a public key and a private key. The public key is what anybody can see. So if I want you to send me some cryptocurrency, I can show you my public key, which also might come in the form of a QR code. You can scan it or type it into your wallet browser and send me cryptocurrency. Once it's in my account, the only way I can send it out is to have a private key. And the private key only I see. And the private key often comes, it's 1824 digits, I don't remember, but it's often recorded in what's called a seed phrase. And the seed phrase is usually a list of 12 words that are randomly selected in no particular order that only I have. So if I want to access my MetaMask wallet, I have to enter my seed phrase. If, if an individual doesn't have that seed phrase, you cannot access crypto ever. You can look in my wallet, my public wallet, and you can see how much is in there. You might not know it's mine, but you can see that it's in there. You can see where it came from. You can see where it goes, but you can't access it or control it unless you have my seed phrase. So the key to accessing and the seed phrase often also applies to centralized accounts. But on a centralized account, again, you can write a demand letter to Coinbase or whoever the, you know, the centralized entity is. If it's my decentralized account, you can't do that. So how do you know who it belongs to? There are tools out there. There are really sophisticated companies like Chainalysis who can do analysis for you and bring in all sorts of data and maybe help you figure out who it belongs to. But uh, the short answer is you don't know. You don't know what I have and you don't know how much I have. So I'm going to switch gears for a minute because I am curious about the distinction between we're talking about cryptocurrency and tokens. I hear I hear the term tokens used a lot. Can you help describe the difference in, in, in those two concepts? So there are some who believe there's a difference between a token and a cryptocurrency. Um, and I understand why they say so. But for purposes of this discussion, a token is a individual unit of cryptocurrency and they're indistinguishable. So when I talk about a, 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 Bitco a Bitcoin, it might also be a Bitcoin token. Just same, same, uh, same concept, different words. And for purposes of our conversation, we're talking in generalities, but as you noted earlier, so much of this is dependent on the particular blockchain that, that you are 
utilizing or that you are that you have currency with correct correct uh every blockchain there, there are different ways of achieving consensus on each blockchain and consensus is what it takes for more than 50 percent of the users to make a decision about what's going to happen with the chain or changes or upgrades and that sort of thing uh there are a lot of really complex ways that, that are too confusing for this discussion uh but every blockchain every cryptocurrency uh, has some form of consensus through which the users guide that coin and its maintenance and upgrade. So I also heard you talk about your wallet and are there varying types of wallets and are there issues or information that would be helpful to understand on distinctions between different types of wallets and how you hold the crypto? Uh, yes, there are. Um, so we mentioned a, a custodial wallet is what most custodial exchanges will call the account that you use to access your custodial your cryptocurrency that's held on their exchange a non-custodial wallet is one that you operate yourself and so i i hold cryptocurrency i have an account on on several different exchanges centralized exchanges i have more than one because one never knows which exchanges might get in trouble in this climate and if one gets in trouble, I want to be able to move assets to another. I also have several different non-custodial wallets. MetaMask is probably the most common one that you may have heard of uh, for several reasons. Any, I don't keep, most crypto enthusiasts do not keep large amounts of money on centralized exchanges because if there is a bankruptcy, if that exchange goes bankrupt, the cryptocurrency on that exchange is part of the bankruptcy estate and all I am is a creditor. And But if I purchase my cryptocurrency through a centralized exchange and then I transfer it to my non-custodial wallet, I actually control it. And so if that I can buy buy a million dollars of cryptocurrency on Coinbase and I transfer it to my non-custodial wallet and Coinbase goes bankrupt, I've still got my million dollars. But if, if Coinbase is holding that money, uh, that cryptocurrency and they go bankrupt and that's part of their estate and I'm I'm just a creditor. So that's why people maintain their own wallet. So John, let me let me ask you a question on that. So assuming it, it sounds to me like most people would be better suited to hold things in a non-custodial wallet because you have all the rights, all the control, no one else has a claim to it. What's the benefit of a custodial wallet if that's if that's the case? benefit of the of the custodial wallet is they have institutional grade security and they have constant monitoring in networks to prevent people from hacking them and getting your crypto um we hear all the time about massive hacks and thefts of cryptocurrency blockchains themselves never get hacked. what gets hacked are they inputs and the outputs of those exchanges so when people are if, if somebody steals my seed phrase as i'm putting it into a, a centralized exchange or my decentralized wallet they have control of my funds so the advantage of using a centralized exchange is they're really good at protecting their assets the advantage of using a decentralized wallet is that if something happens to that exchange i've still got my coins in my wallet the disadvantage of a district decentralized wallet is that I control it and I'm responsible for it. And if I make a mistake, 
if I'm entering a 24 digit code and I get 23 digits right in this one and I send it to the wrong address, that crypto is gone forever or none. Can I get it back? No exceptions, no way, no how, it's just gone. And there are literally billions of dollars spread across hundreds of blockchains of people who have just lost their passphrase or they accidentally sent it to the wrong person. And it, that's a problem that cannot be fixed. I mean, it, it, you cannot make it go away. So you have to be really careful when you hold your own decentralized wallet. And in a bankruptcy context, if I'm a bankruptcy practitioner and I think somebody has a decentralized wallet, hey, that's, that's the first thing I'm gonna ask in discovery. Do you have any of these assets? And force them to tell you whether they do or they don't. But if I die, and nobody has the keys to my, nobody has the seed phrase to my decentralized wallet, it's gone. My family can't get it, my friends can't get it, nobody can get it. It cannot be recovered literally by any government entity or any enforcement entity or any bankruptcy. So the, the, the way you take care of your keys is very important. There's a third type of wallet that's worth mentioning, particularly in a bankruptcy context, and that is what's called a cold wallet. Uh, a decentralized wallet can only be controlled by me, excuse me, a non-custodial wallet can only be controlled by me, uh, but it's on my computer. I'm looking at it right now. There's a little MetaMask symbol that I can, I can click on that and my wallet will come up. And because it's on my computer, if somebody hacks my computer, it somehow is able to find or steal my seed phrase if I were to send it to someone, they have access to my wallet and I can't do anything about it. They take those, the contents in it and it's gone. But a cold wallet does not touch my computer. It's it's a separate, you often see it looks like a thumb drive or sometimes like a credit card. And I can transfer all of the contents of my wallet. And again, all the contents are, are access to a ledger. Uh, I can transfer that to a cold wallet and it cannot be accessed by anybody who gets access to my computer or anything else. It's sitting in my hand or in my safe or my safety deposit box. So a bankruptcy practitioner needs to know that just because you don't have a non-custodial wallet on your computer or an account at an exchange, that you might still have access to these cryptocurrency that's held in a cold wallet. So John, are there any other general concepts as we're, we're thinking through what would a bankruptcy practitioner need to know about Bitcoin? Because I'd like to also talk a little bit about regulation. And before I move to that topic, I want to make sure that we've covered everything that you think are some of the, the, the primaries, if you will. So uh, there are many. Um, for example, if I hold uh, certain types of cryptocurrency uh, can be what's the equivalent of interest bearing. So if I have certain types of uh, cryptocurrency, I can I can stake them to a particular protocol and they earn me money. And so that's, it's like, a, it sounds like interest because you're earning money, but when you stake to a protocol, you're actually providing a service. Uh, you're putting liquidity in that protocol and, or some other service. And in return for that, you get paid money. Generally speaking, the higher risk that protocol is, the more money you get back. And the point is, all cryptocurrencies are not created equal. Some have stakeable value that I might earn four or 5% a year. Others I earn 40 or 50% a year. And others I might earn 40 or 50% per month. And, and those are real numbers. So if you're a if you're a bankruptcy practitioner and you realize that you you try some of you've already gotten control of these assets, 
you need to know what each of those assets is, whether it's earning interest and whether you might need to take steps to protect that interest that you're earning on behalf of the bankruptcy estate. For example, if I, if I have a certain type of token and I've entered it into a six month staking contract, I can't get anything out for six months. So if a practitioner looks at that and says, okay, that's worth X. Well, it's worth X right now, but at the end of six months, it's going to be worth more than X because it's going to get more money. If I pull it out early, then I've lost some money for the estate. Um, another even more poignant example is if I have a lending contract on, on various blockchains and, and uh, protocols called decentralized finance protocols, you can stake and borrow and lend. You can borrow against your own cryptocurrency. You can allow others to borrow against it. So it's literally like a bank, except there's no bank there. Uh, and if I'm, if I borrow against my own cryptocurrency, the collateralization ratios need to be very carefully monitored. So if I put down a thousand dollars, maybe I can borrow seven hundred dollars back, and that three hundred dollars is held there in escrow. But if the value of the cryptocurrency fluctuates while I have a loan outstanding, I have to increase that collateral to the same percentage. So if I have to have thirty percent collateral in there. In the example I just gave and the price of the cryptocurrency that I'm borrowing against goes down, I need to increase that collateral or else I'll be collateralized less than 30%. And if I don't, that position is liquidated and the coin and my loan and my collateral goes away. And people, so people are constantly looking for liquidation opportunities because liquidators make money. Uh, and I will end up getting back dramatically less of that deposit than I put in. So if you're a bankruptcy practitioner, and you're holding cryptocurrency in that situation, you need to know, are you in a loan position? Are you a lender or are you a borrower? And you have to know not just generally, but for each specific asset, you need to know what those collateralization ratios are and what are your staking responsibilities so that you can keep up with them. And so you, you referenced this concept of protocols that that's associated with each particular crypto how would a creditor or a trustee go about learning or understanding what those protocols are? So that's going to be very challenging. Um, and it, the easiest thing to do, what's important is that they know they're there and they know that they, there's an obligation that they have to have. Once they know that, they can help them find somebody to figure it out. So there are uh, companies that can go in. There are specialists and experts that can if you identify the tokens that are at stake at play and the decentralized protocols on which they are staked, there are specialists who can help you figure out what you need to do to maintain that value. Uh, at this point, let's be honest, there are not that many of them uh, because it's not that big a market. But we continue to see bankruptcies of the size that we're seeing now, multi-billion dollar bankruptcies, that market's going to grow. And so there will be third-party providers who can help you. So I would say what's important, first and foremost, just to know that there's an issue there. And that you have to deal with it and you can find a professional to help you deal with it in the right way. So John, tell me a little bit about um, NFTs and are NFTs considered assets? Would they be assets of the bankruptcy estate? Let's talk a little bit about those. So NFTs are non-fungible tokens. Uh, a token in the sense that most tokens, uh, it, if you have one Bitcoin, it's like every other Bitcoin. It's maintained as a separate ledger on a blockchain, but the value is the exact same. So if you purchase a Bitcoin and I purchase a Bitcoin, they have the same value. We could swap them back and forth. It wouldn't matter. 
But an NFT, and we call that property as being fungible. One can be exchanged for the other. NFTs are non-fungible tokens where they what each NFT is a separate digital asset. And it is different from every other digital asset there is. Um, it's identified differently. Uh, so if I trade it, it can be tracked firstly. It can be tracked and it can have contracts built into it that control what can happen to it, like any cryptocurrency. Um, but NFTs are commonly associated with art, for example. So if I attach art to my NFT, it's like having my own little digital painting is there. Um, collectibles, you know, so you may have heard of top shots or shots of NBA basketball players having little snippets of a big dunk uh, or various things that, that they might do. And those collectibles are thought to have value just like, you know, collecting baseball cards. Um, and the value of each NFT is not if you have a series of 10,000 NFTs, they may all have a different value. It just depends on how collectible they are, how popular they become. So that, that's writ large. That's sort of the difference between an NFT and a regular type of cryptocurrency. Uh, NFTs, like cryptocurrency, are property. And so if somebody has an NFT collection, first thing to do is identify. Make sure you ask, do they have it, access to it? And do they have it? And if they do, you have the same storage issues like you have with a decentralized exchange or a non-custodial wallet. Um, so they could be stored in the exact same way, either publicly or on a wallet. Most NFT, a lot of NFTs uh, are, particularly those that are collectibles, people will want to display them. They kind of, they want to brag on them. So they'll have either a, an account like OpenSea on a change that where they can have a display that shows all their NFTs at once. Uh, or if they're just a collector and they're quiet and humble about it, they, they may have them stored on their own cold wallet and nobody knows they're there but them. So there's no one size fits all approach to how you figure out what sort of NFTs people have. But NFTs can have a tremendous value. Uh, they've sold for, you know, and then when art NFT sold for $63 million, in spite of the fact that you can take a screenshot of that art, it will look exactly like the art that you have on your NFT. $63 million is the price that somebody paid for it. Um, so those assets can be real and they can be valuable. And it's really just driven by the market. All of this is driven by supply and demand. That's correct, specifically with NFTs. Uh, with, with cryptocurrencies, there are other utilities more than supply and demand that can affect the value. Are NFTs ever held in a centralized exchange or are they strictly decentralized? Uh, they can be. Um, there are many centralized marketplaces where you can store your NFTs. Um, in that case, you have the exact same example that we had with the centralized exchange. If somebody is able to access your NFT uh, through a marketplace, uh, then they can, you know, then it's subject to whatever happens to the marketplace. If you have it and control it yourself, then uh, it's much more protected, but much more difficult to access in a bankruptcy context. And the same controls go with respect to having a seed phrase and being able to trade it and, and, and monitor the trades. You can monitor uh, movement of NFTs on a blockchain, just like you can monitor the movement of any cryptocurrency on blockchain. So John, another term that you hear used quite often is DAO. Help us understand what, what exactly that is and and, and give me some context about their role in these exchanges and, and wallets. So a DAO, commonly referred to as a DAO, is a decentralized autonomous organization. 
And that is off. That's what many cryptocurrencies, uh, I, I mentioned earlier, there's no single trusted authority for most cryptocurrencies. And that authority or trust is based in the community of users. And often the community of users will organize themselves in what's called a DAO, a decentralized autonomous organization. And the DAO, each DAO will have a mechanism to allow community members to weigh in on votes uh, and to have some sort of influence over or better understanding of that particular protocol. So a common, uh, a common arrangement might be that a DAO has uh, what's called a sentiment vote. And the DAO will post on, and most DAOs communicate, all communication is through the internet, through emails or, or web access. Uh, and DAOs will have social media pages, often Reddit or uh, uh, Medium, or you know, many other Telegram uh, and many other social media accesses. And the community members will communicate through those social media points. So the DAO will announce through its social media outlets, we're going to have, you know, votes are posted, or here's the process for posting a vote. The individual token holders can actually go in and make proposals to the DAO. And every DAO will have some threshold about how many tokens you have to make a proposal and how long the votes are and what a quorum is and, you know, that sort of thing. And the DAOs essentially act as governing bodies over a particular protocol. And, and how, how is a DAO more complex in respect to a bankruptcy than say, you know, you're going to go into a bank and be able to look at all the assets and understand everything the bank holds. I'm guessing it's a whole lot different with the DAO. That's correct. A bank or a centralized exchange has a legal entity that can be served. You know, you can subject them to legal process. Most DAOs don't have legal entities. Some do, but most don't. They're just a non, they're, they have no legal designation at all. They're a group of individuals. It might be 10 individuals or it might be 10 million individuals. And those individuals can participate generally uh, in proportion to the amount of that token that they hold. They participate in DAO governance. So if you are, if you're trying to serve a DAO, it has been done literally just a couple of times. Uh, the way it's been done is a court in New York allowed a DAO to be served by sending them a non-fungible token to the DAO address that was listed, you know, the web address. Uh, and when members of the DAO were talking about the fact that they had received service or process through that token, the court concluded that because they were talking about it, that was that was evidence enough that they had received the subpoena, therefore they had been served. So great, they've been served. The challenge with the DAO is you don't know who those members are unless they have identified themselves somehow. Uh, you have no idea of knowing who they are. In fact, most DAO members don't know who their co-members are. They don't know where they live. They don't know if they're male or female. They don't know in what geography they are. Uh, and and, and, and they, they like it that way because they want to be decentralized. They don't want to be identified. They want to get out from under this, you know, the central, uh, the, the type of trust that's required with government and banking relationships so they can operate autonomously. So it's very, even if you can serve a DAO, uh, that doesn't do any good if there's not an individual there. Anybody with analysis tools can get that information, whether you're a member of the DAO or not. 
Thanks, John. That was a fantastic overview of what crypto is. Next time, we will speak with John and Jared Tolley about general legal issues facing lawyers who deal with crypto assets and what they are seeing with the development of the law as it relates to crypto.